thanks very much everyone for attending. My name is Beth Hale. Um, I'm a partner at CM Murray and I'm our GC, so I have to grapple with these legal privilege issues quite a lot. I am delighted to be joined today by um, our senior associate, Wani Sander, who's like our in-house privilege expert, and um, Michael White, who's a barrister at 11KBW, and we're really delighted to have um, joined forces for this, for this session. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk through some of the basics of legal privilege, legal advice privilege and litigation privilege. We're going to talk through sort of the general themes, the, the sort of, as I say, the sort of back to basics, which many of you will be familiar with. Um, and then we're going to go through some of the more complex areas and more difficult areas that people deal with in practice. And then for the second half of the session, we're going to be looking at two sort of live scenarios. Um, we're going to put up some polls, we're going to ask you to think about some questions and um, um, it's going to be a bit more interactive. So at that stage, very happy for people to turn their cameras on and come back on and chat to us about what they think. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to uh, turn to Wanu and say, why are we here? Why do we even care? Why does privilege even matter? Uh, welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining today. So why does privilege matter? Um, well, most of you will know that the key benefit of it is that it allows the holder to withhold material um, from production to a third party, most likely um, the other side in litigation um, and the court. Um, but it's an it's an absolute right. So it doesn't just allow the holder to withhold um, the material from a court. It also allows the holders to withhold material from regulators, public authorities, for example, the police or tax authorities. And it can ground a standalone um, exemption from various things like uh, GDPR uh, subject access rights as well. Um, it's been described as a fundamental human right. Um, so once you have it, essentially, apart from a waiver, um, there's an absolute right to keep that, that material um, away from third parties. Um, and it could be written or oral material, which is a, another sort of point to always bear in mind. Um, so if uh, material is privileged, but it's orally, um, it, it's oral material, it could still come out in cross-examination, for example, if privilege doesn't actually apply. And Michael, so um, one has told us why we're here. But what, what are the main types of privilege available? I've mentioned them already, so spoiler alert, but um, <laughs> could you just talk us through what the uh, yeah, types are and what's available? And I'm, again, I'm sure this will be familiar to, to, to many of those watching, but just the headlines are you have, of course, two types of legal professional privilege. So you have legal advice privilege and litigation privilege, and those aren't mutually exclusive. Um, there's also without prejudice privilege, that's not really a facet of legal professional privilege, and that has a somewhat different legal basis. So we're not going to be focusing on that today. And, and for legal advice privilege, which we're going to deal with first, and we're going to go through, through the sort of requirements and tricky issues around legal advice privilege first. So just sort of back to basics intro, what are the basic requirements that you need, Michael, to, to, to claim privilege over a document or a as one who says, or an oral piece of evidence? So there are, there are three essential limbs to legal advice privilege. So first of all, you need a confidential communication. Uh, second, that communication needs to be between a client and their lawyer. Uh, and thirdly, that must be made for the dominant purpose of giving or receiving legal advice. Yeah, thank you. And we're going to drill down into each of those. Um, firstly, and this seems like a seems like it should be an easy question, but perhaps isn't that easy? What what is a lawyer for those purposes? Yeah. So on the face of it, it is the the answer that looks like on the tin. It will be um, members of the legal profession, so solicitors, barristers, 
um, members of uh, Silex, um, but it also catches those who are trained um, by qualified um, legal professionals, so trainees and paralegals who are working under uh, legal supervision. Um, the reason why it might seem a little bit more complex is because there was initially argument over whether or not it covered other professions, for example, um, accountants or tax advisors, um, and a case which is in a handout that everyone will receive um, after this session um, called Prudential, it was decided that um, widening, widening privilege to cover other professions wasn't possible. Um, and so it now remains that uh, a lawyer can only be uh, a member of the uh, legal profession that can claim a legal privilege. And, and just in the employment context, just to add to that, it's worth bearing in mind that um, if legal advice has been given, for example, by an HR consultant, an HR advisor who isn't legally qualified, then privilege wouldn't normally attach to that. So that's just a bit of a, an area that requires some caution sometimes. On the flip side, um, just to, to what one who's just said, it, it doesn't matter whether a lawyer is um, qualified in England or Wales or elsewhere. So if you're a multinational, for example, and you've got uh, a lawyer in a foreign office advising, then that that will qualify for privilege. Although it's worth saying that there are different privilege laws in different jurisdictions, aren't there? So although they, that privilege might be that advice might be privileged in the UK, it doesn't necessarily mean that privilege attaches to it in all other jurisdictions. Um, that's what I'm going to say about privilege in other jurisdictions, because I don't think I'm qualified to comment. Um, so I think one of the questions we get asked really often is around in-house lawyers, GCs, legally qualified individuals working internally in an organisation, advising the business on their legal affairs. Um, they do generally come in, come within the definition of lawyer for those purposes. But one, you can just talk us through sort of some of the limitations around that and what that looks like. Yeah. So if you you just identified as Michael said um, earlier, it, you know, if you're dealing with in-house lawyers, you're looking at qualified lawyers. So you know, HR for example wouldn't count. Um, but the caveat there is that um, even the in-house lawyer or GC would have to be acting in their capacity as a lawyer. Um, so in um, a recent case um, called NERC, also cited in our handout that you'll get later, one of the questions that the court was looking at was whether or not privilege um, attached to the advice that was being given by a Swiss qualified lawyer. But that lawyer wasn't acting as a lawyer. He was acting as the um, dependent's head of um, M&A. Um, and so in that case, it was held that you know, his, his advice wasn't privileged because it was essentially commercial business advice. Um, and interestingly, it was held that um, even if the executive was giving legal advice, um, that advice was not covered by legal advice privilege. Um, because again, you know, at the material time um, that he was retained, his job was not to give advice as a lawyer. It was essentially to be their you know, businessman on commercial day-to-day -day advice. Um, so that's just a point to bear in mind, even if you're an in-house lawyer, um, if what you're retained to do is just to advise the, the business commercially, um, and that will have to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis, um, and that's the advice that you're giving, then your advice may not be privileged in that um, particular circumstance. It applies also, doesn't it, to, to people who are engaged as in-house lawyers, but are providing commercial or business advice. So not everything that an in-house lawyer does is automatically covered by legal advice privilege. Absolutely. There's an analysis to be done about what they're actually what they're providing advice on. In the HR context, again, obviously what happens quite often is you might have a qualified lawyer who then sort of moves into HR. And again, that's an area you've got to be quite careful on. If if you end up as a qualified lawyer who's who's um, moved into a sort of broader HR function, 
um, your advice by default wouldn't be privileged, even if you're sort of relying at points on your previous legal experience. Of course, there might be ways around that. So it might be that, you know, you put a legal term in your job title and you sort of hive off a part of your job and you make it very clear that sometimes you are acting in your legal capacity. Um, but again, that's a sort of an area that requ requires a bit of thought. Yeah, it's interesting isn't it? because it can I think come down to literally whether whether you've got sort of lawyer in your job title and 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 in your job description so it's sort of applying sort of organizations applying their mind to that issue when when they're um uh, I've just had a question sorry which I think we can probably deal with now which is how does it apply to legal advisors in a charity or similar organization I think all the same tests apply are they are they a lawyer and are they giving legal advice in the circumstances so thanks for that um, so then the next issue is uh, on legal advice definition is um, on the legal advice privilege definition is has to be communication between the client and the lawyer. So we've dealt with who's the lawyer. Michael, who's the client for those purposes? So, again, it's yeah, you would you would hope this would be a simple, um, a simple issue. Who's the client? But it, it turns out it's not. Um, and the um, Supreme Court has sort of weighed on this a few times um, in recent years especially in the Three Rivers litigation and Three Rivers number five in particular. So the, the case law around this issue has developed very much in the context of investigations. Um, so what typically happens in these cases is you're a company and you've got some kind of internal dispute or problem. So you go away and you retain a law firm to investigate that. Um, and you authorize that law firm to speak to your employees for the purposes of that investigation. Uh, and the question that, that came up in several cases uh, recently is, is the material generated in the course of, for example, those interviews with employees covered by legal advice privilege? Um, and what the courts have repeatedly said is that the answer to that question is no. Um, and the reason for that is that privilege only arises um, as between, as you say, the lawyer and the client. And the client in this case is... Um, only those employees who are authorized to seek and receive legal advice on the corporation's behalf. Um, so what essentially Three Rivers and the related cases held is that just because you're talking to a lawyer and effectively giving factual instructions because the lawyer is asking you questions as part of their investigation, it doesn't follow that you're the client. It doesn't follow that you're authorized to sort of go away and ask the lawyer specific questions and tell them what, what to do. So just worth bearing in mind. Yeah, and I think just a point to make there that, that as you said, it's been something that's been questioned um, amongst professionals because it's quite a significant uh, restriction um, for big corporates, for example, whereby if you are undertaking an investigation and you want to do that early on and, and get the uh, advice and the information is with the employees um, who have the factual information, they're unlikely to be part of the client group and therefore um, fall outside of your sort of privileged circle so it can cause a lot of um, difficulties but as you've said um, in Three Rivers number five it, it was confirmed that uh, that's the law and um, until Parliament revisits the issue um, that's where we are. And sticking with Three Rivers um, what what for those purposes is legal advice so what what it's got to be a lawyer it's got to be a client it's got to be for the provision of legal advice what, what does legal advice mean for those purposes? So everything you would classically think of as legal advice, so seeking advice on sort of liabilities, obligations, um, your sort of you know tactical approach, those sorts of things. Um, but also it's slightly wider because it does include, and this was confirmed in Three Rivers Number Six, 
um, anything that should be prudently and sensibly done in a relevant legal context. So, you know, how to practically present information in a document might not strictly be legal advice on what the law is, um, but it's advice on from a lawyer on how to legally approach a situation. Um, it, isn't, it isn't unlimited. Um, it covers basically situations where a lawyer has been asked to exercise their legal skills and um, the, the sort of phrasing used in, uh, in Three Rivers Number Six um, was, it's about the giving of advice in a commercial context through a lawyer's eyes. So if it's not advice in the traditional sense that we think of, if you think about whether or not the advice is given because it's the lawyer giving their kind of impression through their eyes as a lawyer, um, then it's likely to be covered and be legal advice for purposes of legal advice privilege. Thank you. So um, what about day-to-day -day interactions between a lawyer and a client? So logistical background information, arranging calls, all of those kinds of things. Um, you know, what would any of that be covered by legal advice privilege? Yeah, so I mean, so the courts don't sort of want to drill down into every single individual piece of, of communication. Um, and um, oh, there is a, be a really boring exercise to go that through. Would be very boring, um, <laughs> give rise to a lot of work for us, maybe. But um, <laughs> but there is a there is um, an idea of the continuum of communications. Um, so logistical uh, emails or emails around, you know, setting up meetings, all of those would fall within the um, continuum of communication between the lawyer and the client as long as overall the dominant purpose was giving or seeking um, legal advice, um, anything that falls within that continuum would, would be covered. And, and again, I suppose the flip side to that is that it's not a sort of completely unlimited continuum. So there's one recent case um, called, I think, um, Lawly Financing, um, in which it was held that the mere identity of the person instructing a lawyer um, in that case wasn't privileged and certainly isn't necessarily privileged. So. Um, Again, it's a pretty broad exception, but one can't sort of assume just because the law is involved that it, it's limitless. Absolutely. And then finally, the sort of last bit of that, the legal advice privilege test, the dominant purpose test. So what about is it, that's drawn really into really sharp focus when there's correspondence which is sent by the client to multiple parties. So sent to everybody and they've CC'd in their lawyer. And that's a really common thing to do, I think. Um, so can you just, Michael, talk us through sort of what is the dominant purpose test? When does it apply? In, in sort of headline terms, it is what it says on the tin, and it's a bit easier to apply in the legal advice privilege context. So that the key question is, what is the dominant or predominant purpose of the communication? Normally, in the legal advice context, it will be fairly clear that you, you're writing to a lawyer and saying, can you give me some advice on this? Um, and that the lawyer is responding sort of on that, on those terms. And I think, the, as you mentioned at the beginning, Beth, it can be drawn into sharp focus where there are multiple um, addressees. So you might have a lawyer, um, you might have maybe somebody in marketing, you might have somebody from PR, you know, PR side of the team who you want to weigh in on, on a question. Um, so um, a recent case, uh, Jet2, um, found that where there are sort of multiple addressees, you've got to look at the communication from the sender to the addressee as an individual communication. Um, and if it's not for the purposes, dominant purpose of seeking legal advice, um, then it, it won't be covered. So if it's, if it's between a, um, the client 
and it's been sent to a lawyer and all of those other people I mentioned, the fact that the lawyer has been copied in um, doesn't mean that those that the uh, email is going to be privileged if all you're asking for is some sort of commercial advice um, or a view on whether or not this is a statement that should be put out um, in public, for example, and you're asking that to somebody who is a non-lawyer. So that's that's something to bear in mind because actually, if you are analysing them on an individual basis, what could end up happening is you have several emails. The one that goes to the lawyer could be seems privileged because you're seeking their, you know, views through through the lens of a lawyer on that particular communication. But the one that goes to um, you know the marketing um, executive at the same time. Um, would be disclosable. So there would literally have been no point of, of sending that multiple um, email because the um, the other side would get hold of the of the uh, communication in any event, even if it's not the you know the one that went to the lawyer. It's the copy of the one that went to the lawyer. Yeah, and there's a question here which is. Um really relevant so I think we should probably deal with it now is if you're not actually asking the question of the lawyer but keeping them in copy is a convenient way of keeping them up to date on events for the purpose of their ongoing advice on a situation more generally would that be covered you are that that's covered within the continuum so if you are just keeping them up to date um but what you are doing is keeping them up to date to seek legal advice it has to be you have to be quite careful because on a case-by-case basis in some cases if you are just seeking commercial views then it may not be privileged. But if you're keeping them up to date, it's most likely to fall within the continuum of uh, communications between you and the lawyer. Yeah, and I think the risk you run there is is, is that the copy, that is exactly as you just identified, the copy that goes to the lawyer might be privileged, but the copy that goes to others might not be. So you need to be thinking quite hard. And that sounds like a really boring thing to do, thinking about every single email you send and whether it's privileged or not. But I think if, if you're concerned about disclosure, that's a really important um and then just say practically if you're concerned about that just send a different email to the lawyer and get yeah. you separate email yeah to the other individuals and michael can a document which wasn't privileged become privileged later on can so, you buy it no um is, is the answer and there was a case on this quite recently called university of dundee and um chakraborty um so the way in which that was an, an employment appeal tribunal um case and the way in which they analyzed it they didn't, strictly speaking, slot it within dominant purpose, um, but it, I think it fits quite neatly with that that issue. So what happened in, in that case, again, is quite relevant to the employment context. So you've got a scenario which I suspect comes up quite often where someone had drafted um, an internal, I think it was an investigation report or something like that, or an outcome letter. Um, and they then sent off a first draft to the lawyers um, to have a look at the legal team or an external lawyer. Um, some comments have been made that draft had come back and then edited it and then sent out the final version. Um, and the question came before the, the Employment Appeal Tribunal of whether or not the first draft was privileged. And the assertion that was made was that, well, if you look at these two drafts and you compare them, you weigh them up, you can infer what the lawyer must have advised in the middle. And therefore, the first version needs to be privileged. So it wasn't disputed that the lawyer's actual comments to the draft were privileged. That would be very clear. Um, but what was assertive was that the first version was as well. Uh, the, the Employment Appeal Tribunal said no, um, and essentially they put their reasoning quite simply. They just said, look, it wasn't privileged at the time and it can't become privileged retroactively. You could probably also analyze that actually as a dominant purpose um, point and just say, well, 
you know, when you created that first draft, you didn't do it for the dominant purpose of seeking legal advice. You created it to sort of help you along the road of, of getting a final outcome letter that you were then going to present to the, the employee. Um, again, it's just something worth thinking about because I suspect it comes up quite a lot. Um, so if you're in that kind of situation, you might want, rather than doing a first draft, you might instead think, for example, of just isolating the legal questions you want to ask. Um, or the related factual questions and putting those in a sort of standalone email to a lawyer rather than getting up a draft um, first. Of course, you might not be able to do that in every case, but if it's an especially sensitive case, you're especially worried about issues of privilege, that, that might be something to do. Yeah, I think it just that case really highlights, doesn't it, the importance of thinking about this early and thinking when you're, and we'll come on in the scenarios and the case studies to applying your mind to these issues early and thinking about where privilege will attach and where it won't and what you can do practically to protect it um because there are things you know it, it either it kind of either exists or it doesn't and you need to but there are practical steps you can take to um to sort of improve your situation so we're going to move on now just to litigation privilege which in many ways is the sort of more complicated of the two of the two sorts of legal professional privilege i think so Wani, let's just go right back to basics like we did with the with legal advice privilege. What are the basic requirements for, for litigation privilege to apply? Um, so for litigation privilege to apply, you still need to have confidential communications as with legal advice privilege, um, but it can also involve a third party. So it could be communications between a client and his lawyer or her lawyer, a client um, and a third party, um, or a lawyer and a third party. Um, and in that sense, it's wider than, than legal, legal advice privilege um, because you can include the third party. But it's slightly narrower than um, legal advice privilege in the sense that it does, the communication does have to be created for the dominant purpose of either obtaining advice or information in preparation for ad, uh, adversarial litigation that's either commenced or is reasonably contemplated as being in prospect. So that's a sort of um, limit to litigation privilege. And Michael, for those purposes, what are adversarial proceedings? So all, all litigation, civil or criminal, um, and also arbitration. Um, I think the um, complexity is that it, it doesn't, doesn't include internal disciplinary proceedings, um, criminal investigations and public inquiries and things like that. So again, litigation is, is fine, but that's, that's the sort of key limit there. And I suppose when um, people might say, well, when we're doing an internal disciplinary or an internal grievance, litigation is in contemplation, right? Because this person's made a raised a grievance, potentially threatened proceedings. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean just because litigation is in contemplation, you still have to look, don't you, at the purpose of this communication, which is, in fact, for those internal disciplinary proceedings and not for not for the whether reasonably contemplated on or otherwise the the potential litigation well ab absolutely and of course the difficulty that, that employers tend to face is that if you sort of say well we weren't doing this to do a fair investigation we actually did this to defend ourselves rigorously against legal proceedings it's then very hard to say that you know you've, you've run a fair investigation if you sort of try to cloak it in those terms so there's there's a case on this quite an old one um called war which involved a um, railway company uh, that had run an investigation sort of in the dual context of, I think it had to investigate for health and safety reasons. And it also, there was some litigation afoot. Um, this followed a, 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 a train accident. 
Um, and what the court held was that because those dual purposes were sort of the, the joint purposes of, of creating the report and doing the investigation, uh, privilege didn't apply. Yeah, so I think it's that it's, you you really need to think about what that purpose is and, and, and why you know why you're doing what you're doing. And what if um, the communication is for the purpose of avoiding litigation, settling litigation, um, rather than conducting the litigation itself? Well, does that then fall within? Yeah, so so that that would fall um, within uh, litigation privilege if you're just seeking to sort of you know settle head off um, the litigation. Um, it does pass the dominant purpose test, and and that was held in um, the cases of SFO and um, Eurasian. Um, but you do still have to be seeking advice or information for that litigation, um, and again, that's the control. So it's not just litigation more broadly. And one of the uh, recent cases that's brought that into um, focus, and I guess was quite a surprise to some people, <laughs> um, is the West Ham and E twenty case, where the court gave that strict interpretation interpretation of the dominant purpose test, um, and basically held in in situation where um, directors uh, were holding commercial discussions between themselves in relation to settling um, a case. They were talking sort of about strategy. Those discussions were held that were held not to be um, privileged, or the emails um, that that contained those discussions were not privileged um, because they were not seeking advice or information for the litigation. It was just purely commercial discussions. Um, so it's just again, it's just an issue to really bear in mind because a lot of the time. Um, clients will have discussions internally with senior people when litigation's afoot and they are talking about trying to settle the litigation. But if it's not uh, involving either the lawyer or it's not seeking particular um, information or advice, uh, it won't be covered. Um, and that's what that, that case held. Yeah, so it, I think it was a surprising case, but, but I mean, makes sense from a strict interpretation of the legal position. And then I think... One of the really difficult questions in this area is what what does reasonably contemplated mean? When do you start to reasonably contemplate litigation? Because a lawyer might say, well, I mean, I'm always reasonably contemplating litigation because, you know, I'm, I'm risk averse and that's, you know, how I operate. Um, is there a is there a kind of threshold that you have to reach? Is there a sort of particular moment, letter of claim, letter before action, anything like that? Well, I think this is this has to be a very lawyer's answer, which is that it's very fact sensitive. Um, which clients, of course, love to hear. Um, I mean, it, it is it is a very nuanced question, I think, and it just has to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. I think this is probably one of the slightly easier aspects of the test to surmount if you're in the right factual ballpark. So, again, in the ENRC case, um, litigation was really, at the time, it, seemed, it was much more of a sort of possibility than probability that there'd be criminal proceedings. Um, but that possibility was held to be enough so once once litigation sort of you know you can definitely see it over the horizon you're, you're probably okay but it's going to very much turn on the facts of the case thank you it was a beautiful lawyer's answer uh before we move on to the sort of real practical stuff i just wonder if you've got any sort of key practical guidance of how to ensure that privilege is maintained in, in communications yeah, so I'll just divide that into legal advice privilege um, and litigation privilege. Obviously, I if you jump in if you've got some additional things to add. Um, but when you're dealing with legal advice privilege, um, if it's a big issue or, or you're concerned about maintaining privilege, and let's say, for example, you do have um, non-legally qualified individuals within the business who routinely give you advice, 
um, on legal and legal issues, but you want to definitely make sure it's privileged, instruct external lawyers. Um, that will guarantee it and make sure that you define your client group so that those who are tasked with um, obtaining advice from the lawyers um, can be specifically identified. If that group grows or shrinks, um, that should all be recorded just so it could be evidenced if you need to show that these individuals are indeed covered um, in the client group and therefore their communications with the lawyers um, are covered by um, legal advice privilege. Um, and then in terms of litigation privilege, we were discussing earlier um, about when a claim or, or when litigation is reasonably in prospect. Um, if you, with your sort of risk-averse mind, um, have got it, <laughs> have got it at the front of your mind, get that down on paper when you think that um, adversarial proceedings might be on foot, so that you can recall the time, the moment in time when it was determined that um, litigation was reasonably in prospect, um, and therefore from that point onwards you would be arguing that litigation privilege applied um, as all your communications with your lawyers and any third parties assisting with conducting that litigation was privileged. Those are my sort of two top tips at this stage, but I'm sure we'll get into more when we get into the scenarios. It's worth saying, isn't it? That I think marking something privileged, I would, we would always advise people, mark things as privileged if you think they're privileged because that will help, but it's certainly not conclusive. And um, if necessary, a court will look beyond just a... Uh, an email header which says privileged and and, and also I was just going to say that also of course look beyond whether a lawyer is copied into things um I think in, t in terms of practical steps in that regard it's a bit of a sliding scale so if you sort of end up copying your lawyer into every email you send um because you know something might at some point be privileged that is a bit of a double-edged sword because you and the risk is that when privilege comes up as an issue it you've copied everything to the lawyer so it's not really very informative on the other hand, it, often that can be part of the factual matrix that's quite useful and that does support a claim to privilege. So it's it's probably worth erring on the side of, of copying lawyers slightly once things get to a stage where you think, oh, this, this might be litigated against, litigated about, sorry. Sorry, Mike, I just said at that stage, maybe discuss with your lawyers <laughs> yeah. um, uh, whether or not you either want privilege to apply and what steps you would take to ensure that it would will apply. So there might be protocols in place where the lawyer advises please don't copy me in on xyz but make sure you copy me in on you know this material absolutely um and one area in particular i think the west ham case as as you both said was a slightly surprising judgment um i think again if you're talking about um sort of settlement discussions but you're having them on a commercial basis away from lawyers that's potentially a slightly risky area where you may well want to get lawyers sort of in copy and put a bit of a legal angle on what you're saying but as one who says it's you know it's the best the best course of action if, if this is likely to be an issue if you think it might be an issue is to engage with lawyers at an early stage and, and sort of get the lay of the land thank you so now the scary bit where i have to do the tech um we're going to move on to look at a couple of scenarios we've got two scenarios um i'm going to put them up on the screen for you to all think about there's a sort of factual matrix and there's some questions and then we're going to put up a poll so that you can uh give us your views and i hope this is going to work let's see can anyone who can't see it shout but otherwise um i don't propose to read it out um but this scenario you're looking at negotiating the departure of a senior executive and what the settlement discussions look like so we'll just give people a few minutes a couple of minutes to read um okay i know you haven't had very long i'm going to ask Stuart to put the poll up um, I'm conscious of time, so if 
So that you should now see, again, shout if you can't, you should now see a poll on your screen um, where we're just asking you to give us your view. We're not going to be um, naming and shaming any wrong answers. Uh, it's all up for discussion. So um, I'm just going to go through the um, what we think of the answers and what we think of the tricky areas. So, um, yeah, give us, give us your thoughts. If you can let us know when we've got sort of most yeah. answers in, that would be great. Stuart, by the way, I'm not talking to a like um, a robot. Stuart, Stuart Smith is our marketing person, so he's uh, our marketing manager. So he's he's real and he's doing the tech in the background. So thank you very much, Stuart. Michael and Wani, do you want to start talking us through this and what you what your view is? Yeah, so um, what's our first question here is your advice um, and your communications with the uh, directors privileged. So you're the UK based lawyer um, acting for the male directors. You're a lawyer, you're giving them legal advice. So straightforward answer, yes. Um, and which privilege might might apply? Um, straight, uh, the straightforward um, privilege to go forward would be legal advice privilege if they're seeking advice either on the litig uh, potential litigation um, or just more generally um, legal advice privilege. So it could be both, but um, we would focus on legal advice privilege for this one. Yeah. Um, and there's always a question, I think, with these sort of scenarios of who precisely is the client, it's perhaps a little bit easier here because you've got allegations against these directors um, specifically, and obviously they're quite senior people who are um, approaching you directly um of course you might have a slightly different scenario perhaps more more common where an issue like this isn't sort of floated among every director of the company um but instead is sort of involves one or two and perhaps the queries go via um specific people in the hr department for example um so obviously in that scenario um you'd have to think a bit more carefully about who the client group is and who's actually authorized to seek the advice yeah, so I think in, in this case, we've said it's the directors jointly, but if the directors were um, instructing the lawyers on behalf of the company, um, they would be the client group. And so, yeah, as you just said, Michael, you might want to think carefully about expanding that client group if other people need to be privy to that um, advice. Our third question, are the communications between the directors about settling the asserted claims privilege? Let's see what answers everybody gave. Uh, majority no um mostly right <laughs> that's mostly the right answer um when looking at legal advice uh privilege this communication is not between the client and a lawyer or you know the client and the third party it's an internal communication between the clients themselves um but one thing maybe to consider um is that it could potentially be covered if the communications between the directors were communications that were designed to inform a request to the lawyer for legal advice. So if they were talking about, um, you know, how, how are we going to settle this claim? We need to get our lawyers, you know, advice about um, the level of settlement and they were formulating, formulating it in that way. And that's what their discussions were about. That could potentially be framed um, as covered by legal advice privilege. Um, and it's unlikely to be um, covered by litigation privilege because if we, as we discussed earlier, um, following the West Ham and uh, E20 case, clearly they're not um, seeking, um, in this scenario at least, um, the discussions do not appear to be 
for the dominant purpose of obtaining advice or information for the litigation, it is commercial discussions. Um, so that's just that kind of uh, loophole to, to look out for. Just to Jessica's question on this, so aren't the, are the directors collectively the client? Um, so communications between them are about how they'll seek advice from and instruct their lawyers. Um, and is that therefore privileged? Again, it's sort of a bit fact sensitive. So I think what, what the scenario tries to construct is a scenario where it's sort of a purely commercial discussion. Obviously, what you'd hope in these scenarios is that in order to engage litigation privilege in particular, um, that you'd be there'd be a sort of angle of those discussions, which would be saying, you know, is it advisable to settle this in light of the legal position? Shall we ask the lawyers X, Y, and Z? Again, those are the kind of conversations you'd really hope that people wouldn't just be having sort of willy-nilly between themselves, but would be consulting lawyers on and would be copying lawyers on. Um, and of course, in practice, if things have got to a litigious stage, very often lawyers will be sort of fronting many of these communications and channeling them anyway. Um, but if it if it is a purely commercial discussion, sort of not not a, not involving the legal legal analysis, um, it's it is a bit more complicated in light of West Ham. Um, just as to who's the client, I suppose it depends a little bit on how one reads the scenario. If 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 you're advising the directors personally, then yes, they are they are the client, or they might of course be additionally or separately emanations of the of the company. I think I think that question, Jessica, really goes to that point that Wana was making earlier around if you, if it's preparation, if you're sort of framing your questions to the lawyer, then yes, it probably will be privileged, but it's yeah, hugely, as Michael rightly says, fact sensitive. Um, I would just say that the the variation in answers on the poll really show up that this is a really difficult area and why why we're here today and um, why it's always worth having a conversation and sort of thinking about all this stuff because it's really um you know a lot of it is really nuanced sorry i think we haven't dealt with four i don't know if you want to give that a go Michael. <laughs> oh yes of course um other communications between the directors that you have been copied in on privilege so just looking at the scenario um i think the suggestion here is that they're copying you in um and seeking your views so of course in that scenario yes they're privileged Again, I guess just the point to, to flag, which which we've covered earlier, is that the mere fact that you're copied in on something doesn't just in itself um, mean that mean that the communication is privileged. Um, and so this wasn't in the poll because it was um, we weren't expecting you to do sort of free text answers when you answer the poll. But what practical protocols might you put in place in this scenario to to protect privilege and maintain it as you go through this process? So first of all, sort of maintaining, uh, I'm not sure who it was that mentioned about if it was the directors um, or, or the, the company that was the client, but if it's the company maintaining that, that sort of tight list of your client group, your key instructing people. Um, and as I said earlier, if that changes, making sure that that change is reflected in the documentation, either an engagement letter or retainer letter. Um, so if it's, it becomes that HR does need to get involved or somebody else who's the head of another business department needs to get involved, they should be included, um, maybe because they have more involvement or um, sort of um, interest in, in, in the uh, litigation or in the, in the advice that's being sought, sought from the lawyer. Um, when litigation is on foot, is, is in a scenario like this. Um, just being cautious about using written communications more generally. I think that's just sensible advice. Um, emails, but not just emails, other platforms, WhatsApp, Slack, Teams, everything that we use nowadays, 
or potentially disclosable. So if you are having those sorts of commercial discussions like in our scenario, but it's just on the, you know, on the WhatsApp chat, um, just letting the clients know that, that they need to be careful about that too, because if it comes around to disclosure, you might be disclosing things that are, uh, um, you'd rather not. Um, and as we'd also mentioned slightly earlier as well, copying lawyers, although it's not, um, you know, the be all and end all, it, it won't necessarily guarantee you privilege. But if you are having commercial discussions amongst well, the client is in this situation, the directors copying in the lawyers and trying to frame um, any queries or um, discussions um, in, in a legal context, um, even as if it's for sort of presentational advice, as we discussed earlier, or tax call advice, um, will increase the chances of claiming privilege. Um, and also just similar to uh, what I was saying earlier about different platforms, if you are writing or if you are sending any sort of written form of communication, think a step before that um, and advise clients to think a step before that um, and try to not write things down. So maybe ask first if there's any uncertainty about whether or not they should be using those methods or if the communication would be covered and then write later. Um, probably the best way. As I said earlier, um, privilege does cover oral, oral communications, but obviously the evidence um, is, well, well, you have to disclose the evidence in um, a disclosure exercise if it's written. So um, easier to avoid that situation. Absolutely. And I just, um, just coming back to one thing about sort of listing people, I, it's not necessarily the case one needs to list out every sort of name, just to be clear. It's, you know, you could, for example, define a sort of group of people, and indeed you might want to build in a bit of flexibility there, but it's just always worth, I mean, A, sort of averting to that issue and thinking about it, and then B, as one who says, quite possibly sort of writing that down, down in some format and recording that, because the danger, of course, as we've seen in, in quite a few of the cases um, on this issue, is that you end up with a sort of amorphous group of people who you're saying count as the client, and then it, it becomes quite hard to defend a specific position. Absolutely, and it's always worth, I mean, setting that out right from the start and discussing it with your clients so they understand how they can share information and more importantly, how they shouldn't share information. So I think that's really, really important. We're going to whiz on to the second scenario. I'm very conscious that we are slightly short on time. An investigation into sexual misconduct by a senior executive. Again, I'll give you a couple of minutes and then we'll put the poll questions up. Okay, Michael and Wani, do you want to talk us through some of these tricksy questions? Yeah, I think we'll have to go quick. Yeah, we'll go quick. Um, and apologies, because I know some of these aren't binary answers necessarily, so we're not trying to trip anyone up, but it was just... Uh easiest way to do it. Um, so first question, um, whether or not the interview transcripts um, of the KC, with the KC uh, are privileged. Um, it's with witnesses who aren't part of the client group. Um, so no, um, the transcripts, just a record of communications between the lawyer and essentially a third party. So for legal advice, per, uh, advice privilege purposes, it just wouldn't be covered. The KC's investigation report and whether or not that's privileged. Michael, do you want to take that one? Sure. So again, um, no on the basis of the dominant purpose um, test. So um, because the, the purpose of the investigation is to produce some findings that you can you can use generally for, say, employment purposes, that wouldn't be covered. Um, and the disciplinary panels um, deliberations and whether or not those are privileged um, for legal advice, privileged purposes, um, unlikely. Um, but it, it might depend because if the um, disciplinary panel are, are, are part of the client group and again, as in the previous 
um, scenario, they are sort of deliberating to formulate questions to the, to the lawyer about how they should conduct this disciplinary, then that could potentially be covered by legal advice privilege. Or if they are discussing, for example, advice that they've already received from the GC about how to conduct the, the um, disciplinary and disclosing their communications would betray the advice that the GC had given, um, then potentially a claim for privilege can be made. Um, and if the, that, the information, which is just purely sort of factual discussions on one hand and advice um, from the GC on the other hand can't be disentangled, um, then they might be able to claim privilege over everything, or more likely, um, there'll be a redaction exercise um, excising the privileged material um, from the uh, overall uh, document or communication. litigation privilege on that one? On litigation privilege, unlikely to satisfy the dominant purpose test. Um, the purpose of, of their discussions, again, it's, this, it's to further the disciplinary process. Um, it's not for the litigation that might be um, that's on, on foot. Um, it's quite clear that the outcome of it is to, to give an outcome for the, the person who's the subject of the disciplinary and not for um, the tribunal case. And, and then that also sort of segues in, I suppose, to the, the next question about what happens if you get sent a draft first and you're a lawyer. And as we said earlier, that, that first draft won't be privileged simply because it's been um, sent to a lawyer. So if there are specific legal questions, probably the better course would be for the panel just to ask those separately. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sorry, because that just covered our, our point before that the outcome report itself as well will not be privileged um, because it doesn't um, comply with the dominant purpose test. Um, question six, are the communications with the disciplinary, your communications with the GC, with the disciplinary panel privileged? Um, Michael? So yes, again, as long as you're um, discussing legal advice and they're seeking legal advice, your um, communications with them, your advice to them will be privileged as will anything else within the relevant sort of continuum. Um, just add to that point. So if you're seeking advice, not strictly on, um, you know, whether or not this is a breach of a particular legal standard, um, if you're seeking advice on pres a presentational issue, or if they were seeking advice on, you know, workplace standards and not strictly legal advice, it would still fall within that um, wider legal advice definition that we covered earlier um, and the continuum um, principle um, that we also covered earlier. And then just on that final question, um, if you're copying the panel into your communications with external legal advisors, again, so long as you're discussing advice that you're effectively giving to the panel in conjunction with external legal advisors, then yes. Of course, what you can't do is just copy them into everything and assume that purely because they're copied in, um, things will be privileged. It's yeah. probably, maybe if we skip practical protocols, I wonder, Beth. Um, I was going to say, yeah, um, we've, we've talked quite a lot about practical protocols already, and I think the same ones, similar ones apply here. And the main, my main practical tip, at least, is apply your minds early to the issues of privilege and think about how, how you can main, establish and maintain privilege as soon as you can. Um, a question that... Um, I promised Eleanor would answer, so that, that now we ought to answer it. It's a question about metadata. Do you think metadata can ever be privileged if it shows that lawyers have provided input and when they provided it? Interesting. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, in principle, if it satisfies the relevant tests, um, I don't see why it couldn't be. I think that, I suppose there'd be a question mark potentially about whether the sort of mere fact that legal advice had been received at some point was itself 
privileged. Um, I think, again, it would probably be fact sensitive. I suspect the answer might well be no, as opposed to the contents of that legal advice. But, you know, you could perhaps construct scenarios where the mere fact that advice had been received was was relevant and was pertinent and was in some way revelatory of the content of the advice. And then I think you might be in a more nuanced situation. And litigation privilege, I suppose, potentially, if if the, yeah, you might be able to argue that in some circumstances, mightn't you? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Right, so I'm, we've, we've got three minutes left. I'm going to quickly um, show off a tool which um, we at CM Murray have been working on for um, quite a long time, um, which is our, an online tool to assist with exactly these kinds of issues. Um, I'm going to do a lawyer's caveat by saying that we're not providing legal advice <laughs> when we do this, but it's, um, it's about to be launched on our website and um, it gives you basically a series of questions a series of definitions and some really helpful guidance on um, when legal advice privilege applies, when litigation privilege might apply, um, and, and gives you some sort of specific, you, you can take your specific scenario, put some questions, answer some questions, go through the tool, work out whether legal advice privilege or litigation privilege is likely or not to apply. Um, and we will be sending everybody a link to it. It hasn't formally launched yet, it's kind of soft launch, um, but it's uh, really, as I say, a lot of work has gone into it. It's, it's going to be really, really useful. And we're going to send a link round to, to everyone who attended today. Um, and we'd love any feedback that anyone has. We'd love comments or thoughts or, or um, yeah, or any insight that anyone has or suggestions for improvement. Um, so, yeah, have a play with it. Have a look at it. Um, and, yeah, we're really pleased with it. We hope you'll enjoy it too. Um, any final questions? We've got one more minute. Are there any, Michael, that we haven't answered? Or one that we haven't answered? I think there's a question about IP attorneys. So patent and trademark attorneys are included in, in legal advice privilege for legal advice privilege purposes. Certified mediators might be lawyers. So if they, in insofar as they're providing legal advice, yes. Um, if they're doing a mediation, no, but that would ordinarily be covered by without prejudice protection. So it's a slightly different issue, but... Um, in their role as mediator, I think no legal advice privilege and no litigation privilege. Well, thank Michael, thank you so much for joining um, and participating in today's session. Wanu, thanks for all your brilliant insights as well. Thank you everyone for joining today. We're really grateful for you giving up your Wednesday morning. Um, if you've got any questions or anything you'd like to discuss, do feel free to get in touch with any of us. Um, as you can hear, we're always keen to discuss these uh, tricky topics. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.